Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences is a proud sponsor of this I Believe podcast. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Thank you guys who registered for our webinar. Thank you for being here again, Dr. Carvajal. I'm going to go ahead and just get us started. So let me just briefly introduce our speaker today. Uh, and I say speaker, we're, we're going to be having kind of a Q&A style. So I'm going to ask him a few questions, and then um, we're going to ask you guys, the audience, to bring in any questions that you guys have to the chat so that we can pose those to Dr. Carvajal. So thank you again, Dr. Carvajal, for being here. And thank you to the Melanoma Research Alliance for helping to promote this webinar. Um, so Dr. Richard D. Carvajal, uh, MD, is a professor of medicine at Columbia University Irving Medical Center, where he serves as both director of experimental therapeutics and the director of the melanoma service within the, the division of hematology and oncology. So he's one of the medical oncologists who knows uveal melanoma very well. Um, so we're so glad to have him here. So Dr. Carvajal, can you just tell us briefly a little about your, yourself personally? Yeah, yeah, Donna, and and first of all, thank you for for having me. I I think these these events are so so important. Um, you know, I think you know the, the more we can build this dialogue um, between the you know the physicians, the patients, caregivers, scientists, the the better. But yeah, so I so I'm a medical oncologist, um, um, and and basically you can think of the medical medical oncologist as the you know the folks who are going to help with um, surveillance. Um, after treatment of the primary, um, and the people who will help kind of participate in guiding the care um, in, in cases if, you know, God forbid, the, the melanoma comes back. Um, I, I've been doing this since about 2004, 2005. And by this, I mean, not just medical oncology, but, um, but really um, trying to develop better therapies, better understand uveal melanoma. Um, and and that, that's something that really grew out of a great deal of frustration, I would say, where um, back then in 2004, 2005, I was doing a lot of what we call these phase one clinical trials. You know, the first time we're taking drugs and seeing what happens if you give them to people. Um, and, you know, we, we started seeing a, a number of people with advanced uveal melanoma um, go on these trials just because there were, you know, there was just a, a lack of, of really good, good options at that point. And um, you know, at that point, because of, you know, what we saw, the treatments just were not doing what we wanted them to, to do. Me and a number of my um, colleagues and collaborators started building research programs around this disease and started building um, clinical trials to try to, you know, do better. Um, and so, again, that's, that's something I've been doing for a while. Wonderful. Well, we're so glad to have you here. And like I mentioned to you earlier, we had um, in the Facebook community, at least there were a lot of people who were very interested to just come and hear from you. A lot of patients who see you, who were thrilled to have you um, on to, to be one of our speakers for the podcast. So we're honestly, we're really honored that you're able to be here with us. Um, so 
obviously we, when we first started talking about this discussion, um, one of the things that I brought to you was, was this kind of query of like how to help patients understand the data behind a clinical trial. Um, over the course of the, I believe seminar, one of the, the, uh, I guess reports of data that we saw showed that there was like a nine, 9% response rate for one of the medications that was um, recently FDA approved the Kimtrak drug. And uh, we wanted to kind of have a little, a little chat with you about, you know, what does that mean about 9% response rate and how, um, how do you then justify, you know, somebody being on a trial if the response rate looks so low. Um, and I feel like that information is, it's kind of tricky to understand if you're not aware of like, what that means. So can you kind of give us an idea of what, what that, what that covers? Yes. I, I yeah, the, the data that, you know, I, I have to say kind of this, this audience is so well, well informed, um, but the data is definitely a little bit tricky to, to understand. Um, you know, the, sometimes an analogy I, I use when, when we're looking at this clinical trial data is, you know, let's, let's like, you know, let's, let's pretend we're looking for a car. Um, and really, you know, the 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 end the overall goal of that car is to get us from point A to B, right? And some cars may get us there faster, some cars may break down along the way, but still get us there. Um, but the, the goal is to get to that endpoint. Um, when we are looking at clinical trial data for people, well, actually all clinical trial data, but certainly for people with um, you know, metastatic disease. What we want to do, our goal is, is one cure, um, but, but the measure of that is, is to improve what we call overall survival. That is our goal. That is us getting from point A to point B. I, I want people to live longer. I want people to live forever, <laughs> um, but, but we need people to live longer. Um, and that's, that's frequently what we call um, our primary endpoint, our primary objective of the clinical trial. We frequently use that as kind of the main endpoint. Right, and, and that, that's what we're just trying to show. But along the way, um, sometimes we'll, we'll want to look for what we call surrogate endpoints or surrogate uh, markers for that overall survival endpoint, right? So there are other measures of clinical benefit. I want people to live longer, but if we can um, stop the disease from growing for a long time, clearly that's also a benefit, right? Um, if I can shrink the tumor a lot, that's that's a benefit. Um, but but what if I told you that we had a treatment that could shrink tumor in 50% of cases, like a lot, but that it only lasted for a little bit and then it would grow again and doesn't actually impact survival? No, you know, that's such that a good, good point. Thing? Yeah, it's it's right. Now there's a time and a place for things like that, right? Because sometimes we just really need to shrink down the cancer and I want whatever treatment will do that, that's what I want to do. Um, but that's, that's not kind of the end all be all of, I think what we're trying to achieve. Okay. So just to kind of restate it back, um, that basically this, this response rate is looking at how the tumor responds to the treatment. So it's looking at, is the tumor shrinking? Is the tumor disappearing? Is the tumor dying is, you know, obviously the ideal. And that what you're saying is that it's, it's more important to you as a physician to see what's the end goal here? We want people to live longer. And so if the overall survival rate of this trial is a lot higher than say one that has, like you said, a 50% response rate, then you're going to go for the one that maybe has a lower response rate, but has a longer survival just because 
response, I guess what I'm hearing is that response only means that it actually does something where the tumor shrinks or dies versus it could stay stable and that that wouldn't be classified as a response rate on a on a clinical trial okay that's that's important information like you, you, that's that's really important because stable is still alive and still doing well yeah if we can keep things the same size forever and prevent things from spreading if it's not causing you issues now it won't do issues in 50 years no that's know. that's really cool um, well, thank you for helping clarify that. I felt like that was a really helpful clarification. Yeah, what I can do, Danae, actually, I, I don't want to take up too much time because I know there are no, questions, you're good. but I can actually, you know, it might be helpful to like our, just clearly articulate what we call these endpoints in, in rank order, like what's most important, where, you know, that survival endpoint is clearly the most important thing, right? And and that is, if we start you on a treatment, how, how long will people live for? clearly the most important things. The surrogates, like the other endpoints, are going to be something called progression-free survival. So you'll see that in the papers. And that's basically um, how long from the time that we start treatment uh, do people um, do well before the cancer starts to progress or starts to grow. Um, and that, that's a little, that's, you know, that's another um, surrogate endpoint we use. And then below that is that response rate. How, what percentage of cases can we shrink um, a significant amount, which, which is actually somewhat arbitrarily defined as a 30% shrinkage or more. Okay, so a response rate is defined as 30% shrinkage or more mm -hmm. in clinical data. That's, I mean, I feel like that's really helpful to understand and in the trials as well, because if something has a 10% response or shrinkage, then that's still shrinkage, but maybe it's not classified as that within the trial. That's right. Okay. Well, thank you. I felt like that was really helpful. So um, let's talk a little bit about kind of trials in general. So a lot of people um, with uveal melanoma, as you're well aware, they are having difficulty finding trial options because the, the trials are closed or they just don't qualify for various different reasons. Um, so what would you, what do you do with patients, you know, when maybe it looks like most of the doors are closed? Yeah. So I guess I, I would say that I mean, certainly now we're, you know, when we look at the number of trials that are being done for uveal melanoma, it's, it's, you know, they're not enough, but there are so many more than there were 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So there are a number of trials. The problem is that, um, as you say, all of these trials will have different eligibility criteria. Um, these are kind of like the rules of the game that say, you know, these are the type of people that we can put on this study. Um, and you know, I, I would add that, you know, many of us are, are proponents of making those criteria as loose as possible, right? So that um, you don't really want a very, very um, select group of people to go on a study and go on a treatment, right? Because that may not reflect the broader um, population. Um, but anyway, but the eligibility certainly can be an issue. Um, the, the second issue is um, kind of the availability of the trials, you know, somewhere nearby. Um, you know, some of these trials are big trials done by drug companies that are done in, you know, a few dozen centers in the U.S. or around the world. But some of these trials are just being done at like one place. Um, you know, and the question is, are any of these trials worth kind of traveling across the country or internationally or, or whatever for? Um, and so, you know, what, what I, 
advice to people, I, I would also say this, it's also hard for anyone to understand what is the entire trial portfolio available um, at any given time, right? Like we have clinicaltrials.gov, I think Acure Insight uh, and other advocacy groups help with kind of, you know, educating people about what they might want to look for. Um, but even most medical oncologists will not know what, what the full trial portfolio is available uh, for, for this disease. So the, the first barrier is awareness, right? How do you learn what's available? Super hard. <laughs> um, and, and I, you know, I would say is, is that you know there are a few of us who, you know, um, see a lot of people dealing with this disease and have a good understanding of what the trial portfolio is, and and we're all happy to speak with certainly your oncologists or, you know, many of you may know Renee from Jefferson. There are just all these people who actually know quite a lot who can help kind of guide you and let you know what what you should be thinking of. Um, when I talk to people who are looking for trials, um, you know, what I like to do is, is talk about the entire portfolio um, and, um, you know, which, which are most intriguing, I guess, what, what are most interesting. And, and the way I would say is that, the, you know, one, the reason why these are trials is because we just don't know what the true efficacy is, right? Otherwise we would be using it all the time. Um, but on the trials, some of the trials have a lot of people with uveal melanoma on it, right? And so we have um, some reasonable confidence that the drug shrinks tumor in this percentage of cases or you know, has this sort of benefit. There are, there are other trials where there are only a couple of patients on so far, and we just don't know. I always like to put people or recommend the trials where we know a lot. <laughs> if there's a big phase three trial, um, typically we've treated a lot of patients with those drugs and that's what I tend to prioritize. Um, if it's a phase one or a phase two, if we've treated 50 patients on that and we kind of know and it's looking promising, I, I would try to kind of prioritize that. Um, and then um, if those aren't available, then maybe go to the smaller trials where at least biologically it makes sense, you know? Um, and then out of all of those trials, we have to see what's feasible. You know, if there's something right next door, we're gonna do the one right next door. If there's a super good trial in Iceland <laughs> and you can go to Iceland, then maybe that's the one that we should do. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's really hard. Well, that makes sense. Um, and it's, it's obviously very individual to the patient and to kind of what's the circumstance, what exactly is going on in the clinical trial world because like you said, every few months, you know, every every six months, every year, there's going to be kind of these these ebbs and flows in the trials. And so some of them will have availability right now, and in six months they won't. And then six months later they might again. And and so being like you said on the know of of knowing and being aware of how those trials fluctuate and in availability is so important. Um, so I guess what I'm hearing here is number one, it's really important that you have a medical oncologist who is either plugged in very heavily to the uveal melanoma community or who is consulting someone plugged in to the, the uveal melanoma community. And this is back to what we've talked with Dr. Moser about um, in, he's in Phoenix. Um, and he he talked about this too, is just the importance of making sure that you have someone who knows uveal melanoma or that you know your doctor is at least willing to talk to someone who knows it. Um, because you know, like you said, it is, it is changing frequently um, and it is changing, oh cool. <laughs> my, my curtains in the back fell off. I'm like, there's my bike, sorry guys. Um, 
but uh, the just knowing the disease and knowing how quickly the data can change and how it's still it's still growing, it's still changing as we talk. Um, that it, that's such an important point. So, just as far as like patients who do want to travel um, as a physician, do you like do you guys at Columbia at Irving Medical Center do you guys have resources that you help point patients to to help them um, to be more able to travel? Um, and kind of, I mean, do you do you know of? I don't know. You probably can name them all off the top of your head, but like, do most clinical trials offer financial support, or does it just kind of vary? Yeah, it it varies. I think when any of us speak with the drug companies or whoever are running the trials, we always strongly advocate for that just because we know how many people have to travel. Um, you know, but but I, I would say that, you know, many, many do offer something to help with hotel stays, to help a little bit with the flights. It, it may not be as much as we want it to be, but, you know, at least, at least it's something. Um, and certainly sure. there are other organizations like you guys, um, you know, American Cancer Center that, you know, they're, they're there are organizations that can help with travel, thankfully. Okay, so I think that we kind of already talked about this, but um, maybe a little bit, but I guess if we could maybe check it down to maybe a three to five point checklist. Um, do you have kind of like a, a list of like, what are your what are your priorities or how do you help it make a decision with a patient for like which trial to recommend? Um, and kind of a checklist for like, I mean, are we just looking at, um, like kind of the, the proposed efficacy. I know you mentioned the phase three and the phase two trials, how basically if, if they've been tried with multiple patients or a good host of patients and we see the data, that's where you start. Um, so is there anything else that you use as kind of a, a checklist, I guess, for recommending trials? Yeah, I, I, I tend to, my checklist is actually very, very broad. And so, you know, the first one is which, which of the available trials or treatments do we think is most likely to help? Right. And, and that takes into account everything that you said, you know, how many people have been treated, how often has it worked, however we define work. Um, and we definitely want to prioritize those. Um, but we, we also have to make sure that um, we're leaving whatever we do first, we want to make sure we're leaving as many doors open down the line. Because sometimes if you do one treatment, um, that may um, preclude doing other trials down the line. That's uncommon, but it's something to, I think, be aware of. Um, the, the third thing that we have to take into account is, you know, what, what is the impact of that trial, you know, on, on the person who's gonna go on this? And that's, what are the side effects? Um, you know, what are the logistics? A lot of these trials will require a lot of visits and a bunch of biopsies and all these blood tests, time away from work, time away from family. Right, and so um, you know, if it if we're pretty confident it's going to work, then maybe that's all worth it. But if we're not so sure, you know, maybe there there are easier trials that we can look at or easier treatments that we can think about um, doing. Um, and then and then for I, I, feasibility is really important. You know, I mean, I I don't think most people just can't travel like weekly for for the stuff that we're doing. And so we have to look at what's feasible. Oh, that definitely makes sense. Um, as far as um, kind of how, I guess, how, how does it typically work? When you're on a trial, let's say you start trial A and you have trials A, C, and D are kind of on the, the order of, you've, you've determined that these are the best ones to do for a patient. And you're gonna start with trial A 
um, how do you determine that it's working, I guess? Um, and how long do you usually give it before you say, okay, no, we're done with this one. Let's move on. Cause I know that that urgency can feel really big as a patient. Um, and so I guess, how do you help reassure them? They're like, no, we got to wait. Let's give it some time. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good question. It used to be really fairly straightforward. And I can say that in general, we're always going to do scans every six weeks, every eight weeks or so. That's, that's pretty routine, um, whether people are on a trial or not. Um, and those scans, which, you know, as you know, help us judge, you know, are the things getting bigger, staying the same or getting smaller? That, that's really how we're going to decide primarily, um, you know, is it worth continuing or not? Um, but along with, we're also going to make sure that people are feeling okay, they're tolerating the medicine, the side effects are acceptable. Now, um, with some of the treatments that we do, like the immunotherapies, I'm sure you've talked about this in, in other, you know, meetings, but sometimes you, you have, you know, things that look, sometimes it looks like the cancer is getting bigger on the first scan, but then if you keep on treating, it kind of stabilizes or shrinks. And, and so sometimes we see these weird patterns on the scan. So depending on what the treatment is, the mechanism of action, sometimes we'll get a scan and even if things look a little bit bigger, if people are feeling well, you know, we'll treat for another couple of months and, and make sure that we do in fact want to jump ship and change course. Um, but yeah, at every scan point, that's, that's really our decision um, time point. Okay, so speaking of scans, um, I know we're talking about this, you know, the surveillance that we're talking about right now is after we know that there's metastatic disease and we're monitoring to see how this trial is working. So can we talk just a little bit about um, how do you run surveillance and, you know, kind of what data do you use to run your surveillance with patients who are not metastatic? So patients who obviously are just dealing with the eye cancer in the aftermath, um, as well as the patients who are dealing with metastatic disease. And do you kind of have any flexibility there? Um, I know most of us are familiar with Dr. Sato's protocol. I guess I'm just curious kind of what your, your take on surveillance is. Yeah, so surveillance has been obviously um, a, a challenge. And it's, it's really just in the past few years that we've had national guidelines, now multiple national guidelines for, you know, how we think we should be doing scans, things like that. Um, we don't have big trials saying that, you know, if your risk of this coming back is X percent, that this is the right type of scan that you should do in the right frequency. Um, now we do have some data, for instance, like if you look at, for instance, the breast cancer field, um, they did do trials of, is it worth scanning? And these are somewhat old trials, but actually those trials actually showed there was no benefit for scans. And so that's why, you know, for a lot of the people with breast cancer after surgery and stuff, they, they don't do scans. Um, for the uveal melanoma field, we've had multiple meetings and discussions and different groups like the NCCN, which is a big kind of US consortium of centers that tries to take all the data and make some sense of it. Um, the UK have put together some nice guidelines. You know, I, I think what the consensus has been is that, you know, it's, it's worth doing scans, one, um, in, in people if the risk of the cancer coming back is above a certain threshold. And the reason for that is because, um, you know, sometimes if we catch the cancer, there are some cases where we can do surgery or blade a thing. And, and, 
in a small proportion of cases, um, that's, that's curative. And we wanna be sure that we're, we're catching disease at a time when if we can cure it, we wanna do that. Um, some of the treatments that we have, for instance, the ChemTrack or Dementifest drug, it seems to work if, if the cancer is a little bit smaller. Um, and that tumor microenvironment of the smaller tumor is a little bit different than in, in the larger tumor. And so it might be better to kind of um, actually catch it at a time when the treatments are more effective. Um, uh, I think in, in the US, um, we, we tend to do risk stratification either through the cytogenetics, um, like they do at Will's Eye Hospital and other centers, or through that gene expression profiling, that castle thing. And, and both those tests, when we combine it with the size of the tumor and things like that, can give us a really good estimate of how worried are we or not. Um, and basically my, my practice pattern has been that if the likelihood of, of us finding something that we don't want is 15% or greater, um, then I, I'm definitely gonna scan at some interval. Um, and just in, in the guidelines, again, the guidelines are very loose, right? So let's say the people who are at mm -hmm. high risk consider scanning every three to six months, do that for a while. <laughs> for the people who are at low risk, consider scanning, maybe annual. So it's very, very loose. Concretely, what do I do for the high risk people? Class two, monosomy three, big tumors. I do tend to scan every three months for five years. Um, I tend to space it out to every six months for the next five years, and then you know maybe do annual scans or something like that afterwards. Uh, for the people who are at intermediate risk or lower risk, I'll scan at, at six month intervals. Um, this is also important in terms of what scans do you do? Obviously you do the liver. I think everyone, everyone does that. Um, MRI is better, EAVIST is better. Um, the, the cancer can come back in other places. So I do scan the chest routinely. That gives the ionizing radiation. So I, I may do that less frequently than the MRIs. That's always a discussion with the patients. Um, yeah, for sure. Very un, yeah, uh, it's very unusual for things to pop up in the pelvis first or certainly in the brain first. Um, so, you know, whether we scan the pelvis routinely or not, it's, it's probably not so useful to be honest. So do you, um, do you tend to, I guess, veer away from doing any full body scans or is there a point that you would consider doing um, a full body scan because maybe a patient had it show up in liver and maybe in an area of the spine that was, was visible there? Like, is there a point that you would consider a full body scan? Because I know that like, just as a patient myself, my mom is always so confused. She's like, why has your whole body not been scanned? <laughs> Now, if in, in cases where it comes back, right? So if we're doing surveillance after the plaque or brachytherapy or you know, nucleation or something, and then it does come back, then I will scan um, the whole body, which the whole body is, for us, it's chest, abdomen, and pelvis. Um, you know, you, you, you can, your question may be, oh, should we do a PET scan or not? And I think at that point, consider doing a PET scan. Um, the PET scan is definitely less useful in uveal melanoma than it is in, in cutaneous melanoma. That is in some cases just doesn't light up in uveal as, as consistently as it does in, in cutaneous. But you know, definitely, you know, in a lot of people it's worth doing. Certainly in the bone, it's good to, it's you know, helps to image a lot of the bone stuff. And then, you know, for people who've been 
you know, dealing with metastatic disease for a while, um, you know, or if there's, you know, the, the bulk of the disease, there's a lot of it, I'd will consider scanning the brain because it, it can pop up there. It just tends to pop up kind of later in the course. Oops, I muted myself. Um, that makes sense that, uh, that it, I mean, it just kind of depends on what's going on. Um, well, I really feel like this has been a helpful discussion and I'm seeing the Q and A's just start to pour in, which is great. So if it's okay with you, I would love to just um, kind of shift gears a little bit and we can start looking through these questions. And just kind of for a background, a couple months ago when we were considering doing this webinar with you, um, I had gone and posted on Facebook. So I have I have a, a lot of questions, um, but I don't know that all of them, some of them are a little more relevant to um, someone who's maybe more specific, specific with the eye, so an ocular oncologist. So I'm gonna skip over those ones, but we're gonna start with the ones we have live. Um, and I'm going to see if I can figure out how to cast these onto the screen so we can see them. I think I can do that. Okay. Let's see. So this question, um, I wonder if I can, I think I can post most of it. So just keep in mind as we are doing Q and A's, um, those of you who are live, Dr. Carvajal cannot give personal medical advice. Um, he can give generalized, you know, generalized answers and just kind of guidelines. Uh, but personalized medical advice and answering personal medical questions is not something we can do on this webinar. So thank you in advance. If you have typed something personal, just know that I may skip over it until it comes back as something less personal. Because um, we want to make sure to preserve the integrity of everybody's um, information. So this question, um, I'm not going to put it up just because it does have a little bit of personal information, but I can cut that out. It says, are there any clinical trials or studies on sequential blood testing to see if any blood markers can be detected for patients with class two tumors or to prevent metastasis before it's found in another part of the body? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there are two different questions um, embedded there. The, the first question is, um, you know, are there other ways than just doing scans every few months um, to see, you know, are, are we worried is the cancer coming back? Um, the answer is th there will be, and, and we're definitely studying those. There are, there are a whole host of what we call um, liquid biopsy techniques now where um, you know, we can draw blood and look for things that are um, kind of secreted by the cancer. Um, and and I, you know, the assay that's the furthest along is something called circulating tumor DNA. So that's something where you know, we can draw blood and separate blood that's coming from your normal cells from that that's our DNA that's coming from normal cells from that that's coming from the cancer. And we can do mutation analysis and do all of that stuff. But as you might imagine, it seems that if we're able to de detect more and more of that circulating DNA, that seems to be a bad thing. And if that's decreasing or we can't find anything, that seems to be a good thing. I, I think that's how things are going to pan out. We have to kind of prove that. Um, there, there are also thing, other things in the blood there. We can actually find circulating tumor cells, so actually cancer cells in the bloodstream, and we can enumerate that and do sorts, all sorts of tests. And there are these um, things called exosomes and these vesicles that cancer cells secrete that we can also identify. So yeah, so we're working on it. There's nothing that's ready for prime time. The closest that's ready for prime time though is that circulating tumor DNA. So is there any um, specific names of those tests that people could, you know, ask their doctors around? Um, 
I'm familiar with yeah. maybe a couple, but I don't want to name them off the cuff. Yeah, yeah. I, so um, um, when we're going to do that sort of thing in people who've had like plaque brachytherapy, then the type of ctDNA tests that we have to do are what, what we call non-tumor informed tests. Uh, and these are tests that basically don't require a tumor biopsy. Um, so something like foundation medicine, right? So a lot of the mutation companies that you're familiar with, Gardens, Caris, they can all do the, these sorts of assays. Um, Signaterra, uh, and when we did that Tabentafus trial, um, the ctDNA assay we um, used was with a company called Natera. They've got a Signaterra assay, but that's a tumor-informed panel. That is, you need a um, piece of cancer first to create the blood test. Um, okay. So out of curiosity, um, I know many of us have had the capsule test done or some of the other tests that Dr. Shields team does. And so like a sample of the tissue has been collected and often um, preserved as much as possible. Uh, is the eye cancer something that can be used to use the Cicatera or some other circulating tumor cell um, test? Or is it more beneficial for it to be used kind of as a, okay, we know there's metastatic disease. Now we're looking to see how active it is. Yeah, so the, um, the the biopsies that are done in the eye for the cited, you know, like what Dr. Shields does or for Castle, you're really only getting a few cells out there. They do save it. And so, for instance, if you want to do DNA sequencing through Castle, they've got DNA there, so they can go ahead and do that. But that's not going to be enough for the tumor-informed, um, like, Signaterra assay. It's just not enough. Okay. So currently, we don't have anything that can basically take the the eye DNA or the eye um, the eye biopsy and then find it in the blood later. That's what we're hoping for, but we're not there yet. Um, yeah, yeah, I okay. think that's right. All right, okay. I just wanted to clarify that. So this one is, um, I guess, kind of a loaded question. Do we have a, a reason for like a a researched reason why we're not able to prevent metastasis in ocular melanoma patients? Um, like, you know, why don't adjuvant therapies work or do we, is that kind of just still kind of the way that research works? I'm, I'm just going to jump in here really fast, but I, I think the way that the research works is we're focused on trying to help the people who are currently dealing with metastatic disease because they're the priority. They're the ones dealing with this, who it, it imminently affects their future. And so adjuvant therapies are a little trickier because they just have yet to be kind of have time to focus on, if that makes sense. Yeah, the adjuvant trials, I would say, are, are, are much harder to do, um, right? Well, let, let me step back. First of all, I would say that the priority of all, you know, cancer should be preventing it as opposed to treating it, right? If we can prevent it, that would be, you know, certainly that's, I think that's what we should do. The paradigm of cancer drug development has always been, let's do something in people with cancer inside that's metastasized. That works really well because we can tell relatively quickly if it works or not, right? It's it's faster to know that uh, in the metastatic setting. If it works there, then the paradigm is well. Let's see if it'll work in the preventative setting, right? Um, mm -hmm. And the problem with Uveal is that we only have one drug that we know works, and that's Tebi, and that was just approved. Um, and so I I agree, you know. So so now in my mind. It is a major priority um, to develop an adjuvant trial of something like Tebi, which we know works. Now, what are the other challenges with these adjuvant trials? 
Um, one, to actually do one that will tell us, does it work or does it not work? It's 400 or 500 patients over the span of five years. Um, it's a hard trial. So unless we have a drug that we really think is going to work, you know, it's hard to like to finding that, like is, that is tricky for sure. Um, so this question I'm going to go ahead and put up here. Um, and I think this relevant, this is relevant. Let's see, does it pop up? Would like to answer this question live. Mm, maybe that's not quite what it was. I guess I thought I was putting it up, but now I don't know where it went. Okay. <laughs> this says, um, I, the only approved treatment is Kim Chak. Um, so that's the only FDA approved Kim track is the treatment. Uh, otherwise, is is everything out there still trials? That's the question. Yeah. So, so Kim track is the only treatment that has been definitively shown to help people in terms of living longer. Right. It's the only FDA approved drug we have in the U.S. There are other drugs and treatments that can be done that are not on a clinical trial that can help, right? And so, mm -hmm. you know, the recent the liver directed therapies, the things, you know, that, that, you know, Jefferson has focused on for so long, they can definitely help radioembolization taste. Um, you know, there's interesting data with Delcaf um, and, and right. Um, but things like Y90, for instance, that can be done as standard of care okay. outside of the clinical so that, trial. That was another question. Um, was, you know, don't, isn't there a standard of care that's suggested first? So if there is in uveal melanoma, what are some of the kind of standards of care for metastatic disease? Um, one of the things you mentioned, and we'll kind of get into this too, but uh, I think, I don't think it was in here, but um, it was kind of this idea of, you know, how do you, how do you determine, um, oh, well, what determines whether you use targeted procedures like ablation or something more liver targeted? versus like systemic immunotherapy? Um, I guess that's the first question. So, so it, it's unclear. So there, there are widely varying pra practice patterns for that. Um, what I would say is that we've done um, big meta, we and others have done big meta-analyses just looking to see how do people who are treated with regional therapies, liver-directed therapies do compared to systemic therapies. I think there's definitely a strong enough signal that the, the regional therapies can can help. Um, that that's enough for me um, to almost always present cases in our weekly meeting to our interventional radiologists to say, well, I could do immunotherapy outside of a trial, but you know, should we do Y90 instead, right? And so, um, so I I'm very much a proponent of the regional therapies. And I think, you know, I'd like more people to be proponents of the regional therapies, um, um, either alone or in combination with some sort of systemic therapy. Um, you know, certainly I think something like ImmunoEmbo Y90, it's, it's probably going to work better than Ipinevo. You know, I don't have a ton of confidence for that. We do it definitely if we can't, you know, if we don't have a good trial, uh, but it just, it just works. Um, not as frequently as we want it to. Okay, so um, as far as like any st any standards of care, like are there any specific standards of care for uveal melanoma? I guess that's kind of the question here. Okay, so that's what I was assuming too, is that like this is all kind of like we're all just figuring this out. And this is generally the discussion that we had with Dr. Moser and Dr. McKean too, is that 
the unfortunate and the human side of this is that everybody's still figuring this out. Patients are still figuring this out and we're on the receiving end of the doctor still figuring this out. And that's frustrating for everybody on some level. Um, so I guess, yeah, do you have anything to say to that? I would, you know, what, what I always, what I like to present to, um, you know, people in clinic are what, what are the reasonable options, right? Because look, if, if you're HLA positive and you have a, you know, modest burden of cancer, can track, you know, that's the right answer. So, right, that, that is, that is like the standard of care for, you know, a significant group of people. But for another significant group of people, what I can say is, you know, we can do Y90, we can do checkpoint blockade. There are a couple of trials that I think we should consider. Um, I can't tell you which one is the one that's gonna work. I think, you know, I think they all have a reasonable chance of helping, but which is the best one? You know, I, I <laughs> if we knew that it'd be easy. Um, well, and that, you're right. Like it would be, it would be so much easier and, and that would be the ideal. Um, I think, generally what I have to kind of tell myself and what I've told other friends who are in the metastatic community is just, okay, like we're gonna, we're gonna go with this. We feel like we trust this idea, this, this research backs this and our gut tells us we're gonna go with this. Let's just give it a shot and trust that we're gonna do, we're gonna do it. And it's gonna somehow work out that it's helpful on some level, um, whether it's helpful because we learned that it didn't work and we need to do something different or it's helpful and we get, you know, get what we can out of it and then move on to something different. Um, Let's see. Uh, this one is a question that just says, do some people experience success in a clinical trial and just move completely off of therapy? Like, I guess, have you ever seen that? Or um, I'm not sure about the rest of this question, but it's just generally like, do some people experience success in a trial and move off of the of a, whatever clinical trial therapy they're doing? Yeah, 100%. We, we've seen these, uh, excuse me for, my dog is, Increasing the senile and thinks that dinner time is like now. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, we're just getting, we're going to feed her now. So I, okay. I think yeah. So there are definitely these these amazing um, responses that we see, and, and and we see them in clinic every day. It's still much more infrequent than we wanted to to be. But I have people who. We treated with single agent anti PD one, Hitsuda or Nivolumab, and, and you know I do that for a couple of years, and sometimes I stop, you know, and, and I've got someone I've just been watching for two years, and and nothing is, and this is someone with metastatic disease, um, you know I've 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 someone on Kimtrak who's been on it for maybe currently over three years now, four years. Um, I don't, I don't know if there's anything left there, you know, so could I stop? I'm not going to stop because, <laughs> um, but we definitely see these incredible, these people do incredibly well. Uh, we just have to increase the percentage of people who we can get to that point. Yeah, for sure. So is, um, is there any research, I guess, being done for the people who are doing well to kind of compare and see, is there some common link between say patient from trial A and trial B and trial F and G that are all doing really well um, long-term or have stabilized significantly? Like, is there any kind of room for research or has that happened yet? A little bit, not enough. 
but it definitely happens. And, you know, whenever, whenever we see something like this, you know, as, as, you, as you know, the field is, is pretty close. We all know each other, we're on meetings, we see each other all the time. And so we share all those stories. Um, and, and, you know, part, part of what we all want to do is, is make sure that we can get blood specimens and tumor specimens, all that stuff so we can actually research that. We've definitely done it, you know? So, um, you know, a small proportion of people will have a mutation in something called MBD4. Um, and this, this was work that came out of Paris. And if people have that mutation, um, they respond really well to immunotherapy, right? And, and, but that was figured out because someone did really well in immunotherapy and, you know, scientists went back and tried to figure it out. Yeah, that's such a good point. So that data is still very, um, very much alive and growing is what I'm, what I'm hearing. Very so the more of us that continue doing well, the more data there will be. And the more ways we can find ways to link that data, the better. Um, this question is just, can you quickly recap how trials define success? Yeah, yeah. Again, the, 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 what we want to do is help people live longer. That is, you know, no question in my, well, live longer and feel good. <laughs> both mm -hmm. things, both equally important. Um, everything else, you know, how many cases can we shrink the tumor? How long before the cancer grows? They're important, but but if, if something can help someone live longer and feel good, that's the overall objective. Okay. Um, so this question says, can I get my cytogenetics done for specific molecular mutations in my ocular melanoma if I was diagnosed and treated 10 years ago? Oh gosh, probably not. So the um, you know, the, the biopsy, all of that stuff is, is much more, um, we, we know how to use that data if we do the biopsy before treatment, basically. Um, you know, the, the, the surgeons may be able to go back there and biopsy the scar. I would not certainly advocate for that in any way. Uh, but even if you did that, I don't know what we'd make of the, of the information that they got. No, for sure. Well, and, and something to keep in mind, too, with this, this question is if you were diagnosed over 10 years ago, you are probably in good shape. That's, I mean, just generally you're in a lot better shape than other people. Um, but maybe uh, as far as contribution to research, you know, adding your name to the registry, getting your information in the insight registry and in the vision registry, and making sure that your data is out there for doctors to understand your genetic makeup to kind of see, you know, what's the link here. Maybe there's something in your genetics and your blood that is kind of turning things on to make it so that it can fight the cancer better than somebody else's body. Um, and so having those kind of links to look at is important. So for, um, for you, uh, I can't find the name, but if you, um, Noor, I guess, um, if you answered that question or asked that question, feel free to join the registries and add your information, update kind of all of the things going on in your, in your story. And I think that would be immensely beneficial if everybody did that. Uh, okay, yeah, I, so this question. I echo that. I mean, I have to say, there's so many questions I think we can answer from the, the multiple no, registry sure. efforts if, if people, if people, you know, and it's not just a one-time data entry, but kind of entering in what's going on over time continually. It's yes, just a lot exactly. of work, but it's, it's so powerful. Well, and for patients, like you said, who are so well-informed in this community, like the general community of ocular melanoma patients are very well-informed or they're striving to be. Uh, and so just, you know, Shout out to you guys for being so informed. Now let's use that and let's make sure that we're continuing to update, um, you know, update the, what do they call it? Um, 
the questionnaires, the registry pieces, so that that data continues to grow. Um, the more that it grows, the more that we utilize it as patients, um, the more that the doctors and the researchers can utilize, utilize it as well. Um, okay, so we're coming down to the last few minutes for questions, so I'm just going to apologize ahead of time if we miss a few questions. Uh, I am trying to make sure that I'm going through and, and uh, getting rid of any of the personal information, so those of you who did that yourselves, thank you so much. Um, this question says, what is Y90? So I guess just briefly, you know, is how could someone figure that out? Yeah, <laughs> yeah all these terms. Yeah, so Y90. Yeah, what does it mean? What the heck is that? Yeah, so when, when <laughs> we all use different terms, but Y90 is um, basically um, radio embolization. So it's a liver-directed therapy where the blood supply is blocked to the tumor and um, um, kind of radiation emitting, em, emitting beads are kind of basically used to um, kill the tumor there. Gotcha. Um, so this, there's two questions about ChemTrack. So one of them says, if I'm HLA positive, is Tebby my best option? Like just done deal, is it always my best option? That's the first question. Um, and then the second side of that question is, uh, is there any news on ChemTrack for non-HLA people? Um, so people who don't qualify to utilize ChemTrack. Okay, so if you're HLA positive, um, Tebby has to be on the table. Um, and it's certainly a right answer. There, there are gonna be people who are HLA positive who I, I'm, to be honest, gonna say, well, I think we should do something else for. And typically that's gonna be people who have cancer that might be growing too fast or the spots might be a little bit too big that I'm comfortable just doing Tebby for. And so basically people, uh, right. And so those, for those folks, I might do something like liver directed therapy or something. Um, there are also other trials for HLA AO201 positive people, right? So now um, Tebby is being combined uh, with kind of a kind of a cousin drug that Tebby targets GP100. There's another version of it that targets Prame and that's being combined. You know, will that be better than Tebby alone? It might. And, and certainly I would put that on the table as well. Um, okay, the, the other question about, yeah, people who are not O201 positive, it's, I mean, it's definitely highlighted as a priority, um, you know, and it, it's, it's something that, that frankly, you know, the drug company has to invest in, right? The, the, mm -hmm. the concept works, it just has to be restructured for other HLA types. So it can be done, it needs to be done. Um, it's not being done yet. Yes, that makes sense. Well, and and um, I think maybe that's probably the hardest part, right, is for the people who want that advancement to happen to be patient and to trust that like it, it can be done and that, you know, it, it will be done in the future. We just don't know exactly when. Um, is, there, would, is there anything as patients would, we can do to push for that, I guess? I think you have to. I, I mean, um, in many ways, the patient community has much more influence than, than we do. Um, and, and you have to use that voice, right? Uh, we need investment in um, adjuvant trials, right? Why are they not happening? They're really expensive. Um, you know, it, it's really expensive. The likelihood of it not working is, is you know, unfortunately significant. There's not like a sure shot kind of trial. Yeah, right? for sure. But, so we have to, we need, the, we need them going. No, for sure, we definitely do. Um, so this question is asking, um, 
is it possible, like if they have, you know, progression is happening, is it possible for scans to too frequently to cause a patient to stay on a trial longer than is helpful? Like, um, basically, like, I think if, if you're having scans, you know, every six to eight weeks and you think that it's looking stable, but then overall, maybe over the course of a year, you find out it's actually progressed 21%. Um, is it, is it common to have that happen or does it usually catch sooner because you're scanning more frequently within the trial? Okay, so this, this is also very important. So as a patient or family member, um, this is a great question. Um, with the scans, I, I, I strongly, strongly, strongly believe and advocate that, you know, the oncologist, we need to look at the scans, um, ideally together with the radiologist. And so for instance, at Jefferson, at Columbia, you know, every week we meet with the radiologist, we look at all the scans. But you have to look at that baseline scan. Every new scan, you can't compare it with a scan that was done two months ago, right? Because you're right, you might have like a, you know, 3% growth and that's nothing. You know, that's, that may not even be real. Um, but if you have that over the span of two years, you know, at some point you're gonna have some meaningful growth from when you started to where you are now. And you have to, have to be able to look at that. You can't rely on the radiology report for that. It, it won't be okay. there. No, that makes sense. Um, so I wanted to, if we have just like time for maybe one more question to cover, uh, and then I think we're going to have to call it for the day. We've got so many good questions. Um, but I have a question from the Facebook chat that is just generally, um, is there any scientific um, studies or any info that are showing um, metastatic prevention or slowing of disease progression using things like diet, um, supplements, exercise, just basically like lifestyle changes to support either doing treatment or doing them alone. Have you experienced that? Have you seen that with any patients? Um, I guess just anecdotally would be more of how it would look. Yeah, I, it's, it's so, I, I, I wish there was a vitamin or a supplement or you know, Pilates class that would change the course of it. And maybe there is, we haven't, there's nothing with any sort of robust data that says that this is the right diet or this is the right um, kind of way to way to do things. It's a, it's a great question. Um, and I would say in clinic, I answer that question actually differently fairly. It, my answer evolves over time based off of kind of wherever we are. So if you ask me about diet today, I would say, well, you know, we have to optimize the microbiome um, I, we don't know what the right probiotic is yet. We'll, we'll know it eventually, but we don't know now. But it seems like a high fiber diet promotes a good microbiome. That's a win-win. High fiber, that cannot be a bad thing. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. but specifically- no, so I guess what I'm able... hearing is just, is just that generally, generally like living a healthier lifestyle is, is always going to be helpful in supporting, um, whether it's disease management or just living a, a healthy lifestyle to support being in a trial, um, like you said, one of the one of the goals of these trials is if you're metastatic, we want you to live longer and we want you to feel good, and those things um, can complement each other. Is you know is what I'm hearing. That's right. All right. Well, I feel like we've had a good number of questions and just some good involvement from the community here on our webinar, uh, as well as on Facebook. And I'm just going to apologize to everybody whose questions we couldn't get to today. Um, I'm happy to try to um, pull those and just keep those. And then um, I can just see if I can e either help answer them or um, I can send them on to Dr. Carvajal. And if he has a few moments to type a quick answer, then, then we can ask for that. Uh, but thank you again, Dr. Carvajal for being here.
And thank you guys for being here live. You guys made a great audience and I hope that everybody learned something from this conversation. Bye-bye guys, thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.